Hello, everyone, and welcome to Cinemantics, the podcast about movies good and bad, mostly bad. I'm your host, Nick Melton, and with me, Mr. G. Warlock Vance. Hello. Welcome to part two of the theme month celebrating the collaboration between director John Carpenter and actor Kurt Russell. In this installment, we bring you a horror classic from 1982. This is The Thing. And I'm uh, going to introduce the material for us today. Carpenter goes back to the original source for this. Instead of just uh, mimicking the Howard Hawks film, he goes back to John W. Campbell's story, Who Goes There?, which was originally published in the um, 1938 uh, issue, August issue of um, Astounding Science Fiction, old pulp magazine. Interestingly, Campbell was the editor of the magazine at that time, so he wrote the story and, and published it as Don A. Stewart, S-T-U-A-R-T, a name that he cribbed from his first wife, Donna Stewart, who is S-T-E-W-A-R-T. Um, so uh, eventually, 15-odd years roll by or something like this, and um, the film uh, there's a film adat- adaptation made by uh, Howard Hawks. Uh, it's adapted by Charles Lederer, but Howard Hawks and Ben Hecht kind of... Uh, had their way with the script. There's some controversy as to whether the movie is actually directed by Christian Nyby, as it says, or if Howard Hawks had quite the heavy hand. But um, obviously, it, it appears to be a Howard Hawks. Oh film, yeah, don't you I think? mean, I saw it a few years back, and uh, I mean, the way that the characters talk really fast, overlapping all the dialogue, all the just style of the film screams Hawks. Mm-hmm. I gotta believe that Christian Nyby didn't really have that heavy a hand in the movie. Yeah, there's... Isn't a, Hawks credited as, like, a producer or something? I believe so. I'll bet he just couldn't help himself, and he said, okay, it's your film, but here, we're going to do it like this and this and this, and I think it so just too. became his film by proxy. So the film, uh, the original version, is made in 1951, and interestingly, it takes place in the North Pole. We have uh, what one of the characters calls, uh, uh, calls the thing an intellectual carrot, and one that has a penchant for uh, drinking blood, so that's a... Uh, it's a, it's a human blood-drinking vegetable, basically. That's right. Completely unlike the original story. There's, uh, I've read some criticism about this, the, the original film, talking about its um, kind of McCarthyism and, and this anti-communist uh, feeling. The Korean War had just started, and you have all of this kind of uh, fear of, of uh, this sort of thing. And I also think that what's being picked up is a little bit of the, the UFO craze, um, in 1947, just a couple of years before this movie is made, you have the really famous sighting uh, near Mount Rainier, Washington, by Kenneth Arnold, who was an amateur pilot. He saw these these odd boomerang-shaped craft, and he said that they were skipping across the air like a saucer skimming water. Uh, and there you came up with the title, uh, the idea of the flying saucer, I guess, or he's credited with this. Okay, we fast forward to 1982, and Carpenter makes The Thing um, with a screenplay by Bill Lancaster, son of Burt Lancaster, and um, brilliant soundtrack by Ennio Morricone. Kind of a similar plot line to, like I said, going back to Campbell's original story, but um, trying to capture, I, I think, a bit of the mood of the, uh, the Hawks film. Some significant changes. <clears throat> the uh, drama has been moved to the South Pole, which I think... Uh, is kind of an homage to Lovecraft's uh, At the Mountains of Madness, which takes place in Antarctica. 
there's some other little subtleties. Well, some of them aren't very subtle. The monster itself looks like a very Lovecraftian kind of entity with tentacles and this sort of uh, amorphous form. But even though there's the argument, I guess, that can be made that this film is is equally political, I think that this de- this film deals more with relationships. We have a very isolated sort of set with these various uh, men. There's no women involved. And um, there's, a, there's an interesting dynamic at work there. And um, where um, in our past discussion of uh, Dawn of the Dead, we talked about what a grim film it was. This one has its equal moments of uh, nihilism, and yet at the same time there's there's some sort of uh, uplifting qualities about it as well when we're talking about these relationships. So I'll turn over the uh, discussion to you, and you can tell everybody what what the film is about. Well, what the film is about is in the very... We'll just get this right out of the way because it's probably my least favorite bit of the movie. The film opens with a shot of the night sky, which invokes, you know infinite space you know there's something out there we know it it's the thing we 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 know that there's something and carpenter shows us a flying saucer zooming through space which then proceeds to crash in antarctica i don't like this shot i don't think the flying saucer was necessary i thought the film worked better without it because i mean it's pretty obvious once they find it in the ice down in antarctica what it is he didn't really need to to show us that Anyway, it's um, a little confusing too because uh, there's there's no in- indicator what time that happens, and it's not until later that we kind of remember back and say, "Oh, that saucer crashed a hundred thousand years ago." So that sequence must have been a hundred thousand years ago. And they might as well have just had the text on the screen: "One hundred thousand years ago, a spaceship crashed in Antarctica." You know, completely unnecessary. The story worked better, I think, with a bit more mystery to it. Um, but that's just my biggest beef with the movie. Right out of the way, the rest of it is just awesome, I feel. It crashes. A hundred thousand years later, it is discovered by a team of Norwegian scientists. We don't see what happens in their base. We just sort of get hints of it later. But, um, we see this dog running through the snow, and there's this helicopter chasing it. And some guy in the helicopter is shooting at it with a sniper rifle, and we don't know why. But, um... The helicopter comes across the American base, which is not too far from the Norski base, I guess. And, uh, you know, the helicopter touches down and blows up, and the Norwegian scientist gets shot. And they take the dog in, which proves to be a mistake, uh, because it is inhabited by the thing. And it proceeds to, one by one, sort of pick everybody in the station off, Tin Little Indian style. Um, it's a it's a very paranoia-driven story uh, because the thing can assume a perfect imitation of whatever it assimilates. So, you know, who's human, who's an alien? The whole movie is based around this sort of paranoia and, and lack of trust between the characters. And interspersed between all of this dark paranoia is some of the most gruesome special effects ever put to film, really. Undone by the talented, uh, very young, but talented Rob, Rob Bottin. Yeah, I think he was somewhere in the vicinity of like 22 years old at the time. It was that to me is just mind-boggling. He's just coming off of doing uh, Joe Dante's The Howling, and uh, he'd had a really minor role in um, John Carpenter's The Fog, which is how he met Carpenter. I believe he plays the uh, the ship captain Blake, who comes back to kill the priest. Um, he's the guy in the makeup, actually. So I don't think he had any 
official makeup duties. I don't, I'm not sure if that's a, one of his creations, but... Well, if, in any case, that's how he got introduced to Carpenter, and, and I'm really glad he did, because I can only imagine what this movie would be like if someone less talented had worked on it. I mean, he basically lived on the Universal set for a year, not taking any days off, just sleeping on sets or sleeping in whatever room was available working on these effects, and, and it really pays off. Do you have any like initial comments or, or thoughts before we get into specific scenes, or, or what? Uh, as far as the... Uh plot goes me oh, anything really i'm intrigued by the uh, kind of the narrative structure of this this film this is a very slow paced film and yet it's not boring whatsoever because this this pace it doesn't bog down it never becomes turgid it's always suspenseful and one of the things that helps that is something that you probably more so than than many other film uh, film buffs would pick up on is because of the music uh, the Ennio Morricone uh, soundtrack really led, lends itself to creating tension, even during just a panning shot of an empty room. Yeah, it's sort of cool to to look on it because a lot of people associate John Carpenter with writing his own music. And there's Halloween, which is the ultimate classic example, but he did his music for Escape from New York and I'm sure several others. Um, what's cool about Morricone's work for The Thing is that it's sort of a combination of the low electronic pulsings that you get from Carpenter and a more traditional symphonic, you know, tense high strings and not so much horns or whatnot, but it's very creepy and effective the way that he blends it all together. It evokes a very eerie, empty, icy atmosphere, which makes sense because they're down in Antarctica. And that little electronic pulsing just gives it right, just the right amount of action and tension without overstating anything. And I think it's great. Uh, people, I think people don't give it enough credit. Because most people associate Morricone with, you know, the Sergio Leone westerns. Mm -hmm. But this is nowhere near as big and dramatic as those, you know, spaghetti western movies. Or even uh, take a look at, uh, or, or give, give a listen to um, the soundtrack to The Mission with uh, Robert De Niro. And that's, uh, that's a Morricone soundtrack. It's very dramatic, very uh, kind of overblown in a sense. Um, but still beautiful music, of course. But yes, I think that the subtlety of, of the Things soundtrack—that's one of the thing, uh, one of the things that I uh, thought was very, very intriguing about this film. And in a way, I think it's a very smart choice of him to have been understated because the special effects are almost, in a way, so overstated. You need something to balance it out. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you were to be really nitpicky, and really you shouldn't be, because this. This movie makes no ifs, ands, or buts about showing you the powers of the thing right from the start. If you were to be nitpicky, you could say, I wish they didn't go all full out on the special effects until, you know, towards the end of the movie and let the tension really build. Um, they let the dog into the base and they put it in the kennel and right away the dog's face like splits open in four directions and tentacles just fly out and start enveloping these other dogs and these mutated heads start popping out and it's really gruesome, really effective. Um, this scene, we were watching a documentary about the making of this film. Uh, this scene was actually put together by Stan Winston uh, who was called in to help Rob Boutin with some of this tremendous load that he had to carry for special effects and they made this really interesting puppet um, the reason it looks so real and organic is because there's actually a human in there, and they built the puppet to conform to the to the human body so that it was easy to manipulate. Um, and that's a really cool, effective scene. 
Um, but basically, from that scene onward, you know that the thing is capable of these enormous, monstrous, amorphous blob shapes, you know, with very, very Lovecraftian touches, like you mentioned, like, everyone's paying attention to the mutated dog heads, but in the big blob in the background, there's just, like, random eyes poking out of the, these mm -hmm. blobby pieces of flesh. You can't help thinking of, you know, these dark Lovecraftian entities there. Oh, sure, you know, the, uh, like, something like out of the Dunwich Horror, this tentacled mass that, that is the other brother, or, um, even the, um, the, the Shoggoths from At the Mountains of Madness, these kind of amorphous jelly things that, that can have eyes sprouting out of them. It's obviously one of the, the influences for this film, either you know via Carpenter or uh, Mike Plug, who helped do some of the designs, or maybe perhaps Rob Bottin himself, if he uh, had actually read some of that. Um, one thing you mentioned, this, uh, this monster appearing so early in the film, and really, if you think about it, Hollywood films are rarely like this. Most Hollywood films, um, we see a lot of the the death and destruction from the monster's point of view so that we have this almost omniscient point of view through the movie and it doesn't give away what the monster looks like. It's, it's not until the last 10 or 15 minutes when the hero has to actually confront the monster and, and vanquish it that we actually get to see it. The thing establishes that right away and is um, such a you know, avant-garde piece of, uh, of filmmaking, and, and you don't really see anything like that until probably like something like maybe the Korean film The Host that we were talking about. Yeah, The Host uh, is a great film. I've I've heard some people uh, criticize it, but to me, it's it's a, it's a film by Bong Joon Ho. It came out in two thousand seven, I believe, but it has this absolutely bravura piece of of filmmaking. About fifteen twenty minutes in, the monster of the film. Oh, 2006, excuse me. Uh, I don't think it was released in the U.S. until a, a year or so later. But the monster just comes out in broad daylight and attacks you. At, well, not you, but the, the crowd. And the filmmaker is just saying, okay, here it is. Here's what it looks like. We got that out of the way. There's no more mystery about what the monster looks like. In a way, you could argue that takes away from a sense of menace. But on the other hand, with that out of the way, you can now focus on everything else. And, you know, that's just how you can interpret the thing that way, too. That's... that's uh. That's what I felt about it. I was shocked um, seeing this film in 1982. I, I think I saw it, if not on opening day, right away. I had read about it earlier on in um, Fangoria magazine. I used to be a uh, monster movie magazine geek. Uh, would um, read through all of these things and knew how all of the uh, the effects were done and this sort of thing. But uh, I, I knew this this Carpenter movie was was coming out. I had seen Carpenter's Halloween. I had seen Escape from New York, so just couldn't wait to see the thing. was a little, had some trepidation at the, the idea that um, it was a remake of Howard Hawks, and I thought, how in the hell do you top Howard Hawks? And yet, I would much rather watch the, uh, the John Carpenter version any day versus uh, seeing James Arness uh, in his Frankensteinish kind of stumbling around costume. Well, the, the Hawks version sort of takes away... The whole idea of the original story, that it can assimilate anyone at will, you know, there's there's something inherently creepy about that, as opposed to a blood-sucking vegetable, which just sort of is laughable. It had to have been laughable even back then. Um, one can't deny that it's a great piece of filmmaking, but it just doesn't have the, it doesn't have the certain chilling quality that Carpenter's version has, I feel. I think the Carpenter's version is way scarier, and that could just be that 
maybe, you know, was so many years removed from Hawks' version, it just doesn't have the same effect it had back then. But in my mind, this is by far the superior film. Yeah, the certainly thing, the better adaptation. There's, uh, there's also this, uh, I guess, one of the few similarities between these two films, not that we're comparing them, we're talking about John Carpenter's film primarily, but something I think Carpenter picked up on from the Hawks film and thought, well, this is one of the, the few good ideas from this movie, is the fact that the alien is not interested in communication with us. You know, this isn't E.T. coming to Earth and saying, hey, um, let's be friends. Or the, um, you know, the aliens in, in um, V coming over to just take us over or something like this, wanting to understand our culture. This is, this is uh, a monster that just wants to use us as a vehicle or as sustenance. It's obviously intelligent, and it has, as the one... Uh, is it Wilford Brimley's character um, mm-hmm. speculates in his notes, the scientist uh, that he plays speculates, uh, he's Blair, right? Correct. Um, he uh, speculates that this thing could have f- reformed itself into a, a million things on a million worlds or a million planets, uh, I think he says. And um, and yet, as, a, as kind of a, as an academic looking at this, I want to understand the monster's culture, and it has none. And it's not interested in ours. All it wants is it's going to take over our planet, and the uh, the computer model says that's going to happen in 27,000 hours if it gets out of the Antarctic and into the, the populated centers of the United States, which would be 3.08 years. We did some calculations. Um, so in just uh, three years, a little over three years, everybody on the Earth is going to be the thing. So... Um, it's sort of interesting that a creature this advanced really amounts to nothing more than a really uh, highly advanced parasite. I mean, that it has the technology, obviously, exactly. to build these really sophisticated interstellar crafts, but there's no hint beyond that that it has any other qualities other than that it's remarkably intelligent, and yet it almost chooses to eschew this intelligence in favor of just total consumption. Mm-hmm. Um, that, I think, says a lot about whatever culture this alien comes from without having to explicitly explain anything. Well, and, and we, were, we were touching early on about the nihilism, and, and of course, we don't want to make this one as grim and dark as our, our, our Dawn of the Dead discussion last time. But um, <clears throat> I think that if, um, if the Howard Hawks version of the thing is the thing from another world, which is uh, the Howard Hawks title, if that is a McCarthy-esque kind of uh, dilemma going on there in this this uh, fear of communism, this sort of thing, then we must assume that the Carpenter version, if it is political at all, it has to be dealing with the politics of its time, its era, which was the whole Reagan uh, administration. So, And interestingly, during the documentary we're watching, Carpenter says, well, the thing can stand for anything because it comes from within you. It could stand for AIDS. And that's the one example he uses. He doesn't talk about anything political. The specific example he uses is AIDS. And there's a, there's a lot of blood in the movie. So that, That's an interesting analogy. And fear of blood. So and that's fear uh, of blood, yeah. But but the AIDS epidemic is, uh, you know, at the time, it's, it's very new in 1982. A lot of people hadn't heard of it. Um, so... I think that a lot of viewers wouldn't go and, and think, oh, I'm going to be afraid of the blood from this film. Yet, the, the, the whole punk rock thing had come about in punk culture. And um, one of the the things about this movie, well, we can have really a lot of fun with that. We can have a lot of fun with that. that. Um, the film ends with this very bleak, nihilistic ending of 
the two characters of uh, Childs and uh, McCready yeah. sitting there looking at each other, wondering if one or the other is the thing. They know that once the fires of the exploded camp burn down, the temperature is going to drop probably to something akin to 50 below or 100 below zero, and they're going to freeze and they're going to die. And Childs says, what will we do? How will we survive? And McCready says, maybe we shouldn't. So this this just all, what this brought back to me, I mean, seeing it now all these years later, is um, Sex Pistols. You know, there's no future. You know, no future for you, no future for me. And that was part of uh, that, that generation, um, you know, my generation. At the time, Generation Xers were just looking towards the future and saying, gosh, you know, these um, Reaganites and uh, Margaret Thatcher over in England, they have screwed things up so much, I can't even go out and get a job. I can get an education in college, and I can still go out and get a nothing job. I can't work at a place like my parents did for 30 years and retire and have some sort of benefits. I'm going to work in some sort of temp job until they fire my ass, and then I have to go and get another temp job. That's uh, That was the brilliant future that we had to look forward to, or the no future. And if the... Um the thing does represent something like the AIDS virus, as Carpenter would have you suggest, that raises another interesting, albeit more subtle point, because back in the 80s, the AIDS virus was associated predominantly with the gay population. It hadn't yet spread to massive sections of of population like it has in Africa in subsequent decades, And, and that makes the fact that this is an entirely male cast all that more interesting. I don't think this was Carpenter's intention, but the analogy gains a bit of creepiness and some traction, I feel, when you take things like that into consideration. Yeah, I, I, you know, we, we, see, uh, we see all of these relationships throughout this film as, are, as being very almost impersonal. They're, um, these are a group of scientists and highly trained technicians. I mean, McCready is a helicopter pilot, so he's probably ex-military. Perhaps he's retired or... You know, or early retirement, or perhaps he just decided, I'm sick of it, I'm going to get out, I don't want to fly Vietnam anymore, I'm going to do easy work. So he becomes this, this technician for these research teams. We really don't know what these people do. We know that there's two doctors, and we know that uh, there's these other people who are probably scientists of some sort, geologists or, or whatever they are, but we really don't know their exact jobs. But their interac- interaction with one another we don't see the kind of friendships between people other than um, Palmer and uh, Knowles, the cook. We see them at one point lying in the same room. They're in separate beds, but they're sharing a joint. So they're smoking marijuana together. That's really the only kind of bonding we see. And uh, let's just take this opportunity right now, since we've gone for about 25 minutes without explaining who any of these people are. Um, as this is sort of a John Carpenter, Kurt Russell theme month, we should probably mention who Kurt Russell is in this movie. He plays McCready, the helicopter pilot. Um, I sort of thought of him as the de facto leader of the group anyway, even before they made him the leader of the group. But uh, the only other act, the only couple of actors I would mention are Wilford Brimley as uh, Palmer, no, Blair, excuse me, the doctor who goes a little bit wacko when he realizes the implications of what what happened if the thing became unleashed upon the world and uh, Keith David is Childs mm. um, none of the other actors I'm really that familiar with are there any I mean is there anybody you want to comment on well uh, William Dysart he's uh, uh, 
a very famous uh, actor from another age. Um, he had been on a show, a television show, called Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, um, playing a captain on that. And I think that's one of the reasons why Carpenter wanted him on this film, just kind of a little nostalgic moment. But um, Dice Hart had been in, in many, many films uh, throughout the years. Uh, he had a brilliant career. But, um, yeah, it seems like most of these people are just character actors. And it feels very much like an ensemble piece in a lot of respects. Mm-hmm. So, with the cast out of the way, um, I know you've been taking notes throughout a lot of the movies. Is there any of that you want to comment on? or? Well, I mean, usually we wait until kind of the end of, of these things, but let's, let's, uh, let's get into it in the middle of it now and talk about some of our favorite things, especially favorite, favorite, favorite dialogue. Right off the bat, the dog comes racing into the camp, the Norwegians, who uh, I, I always wondered, like, why McCready keeps calling them Swedes. Um, there must be some sort of... Uh, inside joke going on that that the uh, viewers aren't aren't privy to. But um, the one uh, thing I, I thought about while I was watching the documentary is that before they got into filming, they did a lot of work building up the psychological aspects of these characters and who didn't like who and who got along well with whomever. And I feel like they don't explain a lot of it, but you do get a sense that these are fully realized people. Oh sure, uh, even without learning a lot about them, which I think is really good. And I. You know, that just might be one of those little details that we never get to learn about, but helps us, you know, view McCready as more of a real human being. And the the dialogue, um, which is one of my favorite things in this film, it, it really helps establish who these characters are. Early on, like right as all this, this beginning action is happening, McCready is sitting playing a game of, of video chess with a computer. Um, the computer beats him, gets him into checkmate. He dumps... His, his bourbon and, and ice into the computer's guts and blows it up and calls it a cheating bitch, which establishes from, like, the first three minutes of the film that McCready is a kind of character he doesn't like to lose. So from the get-go, we know he's going to just be balls out to fight this thing. He's not going to give up. The, um, the other thing that, that uh, shortly after that, once all the uh, chaos happens with the Norwegians, there's the uh, the helicopter explodes. The one fellow um, drops a thermite charge and, and blows himself and the and helicopter up. And then the captain of the of the expedition he um, shoots the other Norwegian who is attempting to shoot the dog. Um, after all the the smoke clears and everything from this, McCready stands there shaking his head and he says, first goddamn week of winter," and. Um, that uh, that cracks me up. There's other favorite dialogue, um, like when the uh, Clark, the person who is the kind of the dog handler, when he first sees the the alien monster taking over the dogs and it's still alive and it's it's destroying the other animals and trying to become them. McCready comes racing up and he says, "What is it?" And he goes, "I don't know. It's weird and it's pissed off. Whatever it is, um, you just can't beat dialogue like that. It really uh, it should be humorous. You know, it sounds funny like in retrospect." But at the time, it creates so much tension. That's pretty cool. What was your favorite? Uh, My favorite dialogue? dialogue. Uh, I don't really have, you know, uh, a really favorite line of dialogue. I was just really paying attention to the special effects and the story and whatnot. I know you were paying a lot more attention to what they were saying than I was. Well, as a writer, I think that I'm always interested in, in what the characters say to one another because the more the more that you can show is better than trying to tell. So if we have to show everything on the screen, or worse, we have to have a narrator saying, so-and-so does this, or so-and-so is like this, then that, then we fail. If the character can say something, 
in a line of dialogue and it becomes uh, witty or it becomes stupid or something like this. I mean, look at the uh, the burnout character of Palmer. He's sitting around smoking marijuana all the time and um, all he does is placate everybody and you just wonder, like, what the hell is his job there? He's, he's probably, you know, just some sort of a, more like an underling, but he's really just kind of underfoot, I think. He's, he's more in the way than, uh, than useful. Oh, yeah, it, it strikes me as just a very uh, static living that they have down there. They're not really doing any research. They're just sort of sitting down there until these Norwegians barge into their camp. And then they're like, hey, we should probably investigate what they were doing. Um, and they, they go out and they, and they find the saucer. Um, I know you were really interested in who did the matte work for this movie because some of the matte paintings are really very nice. Uh, the saucer in particular is great. Yeah, that's uh, Albert Whitlock. Um, he had worked on a bunch of Hitchcock films and uh, did uh, tons of work on um, the Hindenburg. But, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm always fascinated by the, the matte paintings. Um, Whitlock's work was incredible, and, and things like uh, artists like Ralph McQuarrie, who had done some work on like the Star Wars films, um, it really creates a, a particular kind of mood. Those are generally static shots, but depending on the little trickeries of lighting, and sometimes they can actually put lights behind the mat. Matte paintings uh, traditionally were done on glass so that they could actually be lit from behind um, to give them the brightness of like the shot of day or um, say in, um, in Mary Poppins, there's a matte shot of Victorian England where they actually left little blank, blank areas to have smoke come up in, you know, and then kind of like superimpose that so that it looked like the chimney pots had smoke coming out of them. So um, when uh, Carpenter got Whitlock to do the, uh, the matte paintings for this, uh, for the thing, it's a real tour de force, I think, when you see it on, on the screen. And you were talking about day. I mean, you mentioned um, some, perhaps some inconsistencies with the passage of time in this film. Yes, there is the possibility of that. And this goes back to your creation of... of the well of convenient plot contrivances. Gosh, I love that thing. One of the convenient plot contrivances is the fact that we vacillate in this film from day to night, from day to night, from day to night. And, um, and because I guess, they filmed this in Canada, you know, they sure that's how it actually was. This, this, and, and this is one of those, uh, the elements there is that they've gone up into, into Vancouver far enough that they're into a glacial region where they built the set, yet they're not far enough up into the Arctic where they're filming, again, remember the movie takes place in the Antarctic, but um, they actually shot it in the, uh, near the Arctic. But you're not far enough up into the, the Arctic Circle to have this sense of six months of winter, six, or six months of, of darkness, six months of light. That should be a factor, though. You know, whether it's in, it, it, where they filmed it in the north or, or uh, it's supposed to take place in the, in, near the South Pole, even if they're on one of the coastal regions of Antarctica, I believe they're um, they're they're still going to have this sense of six months of winters, or six months of dark, six months of light, and that could have been a, a really cool factor in this film. Well, maybe every event in this movie takes place six months apart. Well, I think that we're led to believe that this action takes place within just a few days, so I don't think there's such a passage of time. Oh no, clearly not. But. Um, that is a funny, funny thing to contemplate. So there, there's a, uh, I guess that's that's not a, a continuity error. That's just kind of a, uh, a slapdash way they they 
did their research. They reached into the well. And, That's right. you know, depending on what they felt should be more tense, they stuck it at nighttime. Um, and some of those scenes would have been crap to film, like a helicopter flying at night or trying to see the uh, see the, the spaceship lying in the snow at night. It would have been interesting, though, had they actually gone with that and had the entire movie in the daytime. Because everybody mm-hmm. likes to associate these horror movies at night. And what if this horror was just breaking out in the middle of the day when you're theoretically supposed to feel safe? I mean, that could have been an interesting dynamic. Well, another uh, another thing, in, in a sense of just the visual appeal that's going on in the film um, from a cinematography standpoint, if you want to represent the most nihilistic environment you could imagine, it has to be the bleak, just endless snow, this nothingness, just white, more so than, than even a desert. A desert has sand dunes and some sort of... Uh, it has color, at least. Yeah, it's it might not have, be a very exciting color, but... Sure going to have some color and you're going to have like at least a sky a difference between a sky and the uh and the scenery generally in the antarctic you have lots of bad weather and there are times when you can't tell the sky from from the snow from the the ice that's there you know we were talking about light um this brings me to a little point that's actually pretty cool about the special effects um, the way that they filmed the logo, the thing in the opening credit sequence, oh, yeah. that's really cool to me. Um, we were, they explained how they did that in the documentary, and what they evidently did was they took a fish tank, and they sort of filled it with smoke, and then he put an animation cell with the words, um, the thing on them, and he sort of stuck it the cell to the back of the fish tank, and he had this light pointing up at it with this black garbage bag in front of it, and he lit the bag on fire, I believe, and... As the bag burned away, the light would peer through these letters and go through the smoke of the tank, thus causing the really cool smoky title of the movie to peer out at, at the beginning of the movie. Yeah, it's which it's, uh, uh, is really very cool. It is a, a great piece of, uh, of opening credit, and uh, it always amazes me that even even today, with all of the, the cool CGI computer technology we have when sometimes they'll just do a really simple white burn on the screen and it just says, uh, you know, M. Night Shyamalan's The Village or something like this. It's just so boring. You know, I mean, maybe yeah. maybe we don't need that kind of cool special effect, but it's almost like, you know, if you have it, let's use it for some of these films at least. Yeah. Um, speaking of special effects, is there one you particularly enjoy? I mean, there's a lot to choose from in this movie. The scene where... Uh, where they they blast Palmer and he and he gets up. I can't remember the stuntman's name that uh, was actually the fire expert, and they actually light him on fire and he has to hold his breath and, and crash out through the wall. Um, I like that scene a lot because the, the, there's a lot of tension going on. He's he's uh, Palmer is tied to the uh, couch with Childs and um, Gary, the uh, the captain, um, with the gun and um, the. Uh, that's during the blood test scene. They, they that's decide right. they're going to test everybody's blood because they've, disi- they've discerned from an earlier scene that every single piece of the thing, when separated from the larger body, acts as its own organism. So if they take people's blood and they threaten it with, like, say, a hot needle, the blood will recoil. That's and human thought. blood will not do it because it's just tissue. So they test everybody and the tension is growing and no one's a thing yet. And then, bam... You know, they stick the blood in uh, Palmer's... They stick the needle in Palmer's blood, and the blood, like, leaps out of the dish at them, and all of a sudden he starts to transform, and his head sort of becomes, like, this giant clawed monstrosity, and they have to eventually set him on fire, but the flamethrower's not working, and, you know, they're, they're, 
Childs and, and um, Gary are still tied to the chair, and they're like, oh, my God, untie us because we're sitting right next to this thing. Yeah, it's a, uh, it's, it's a dramatic scene, but one of the reasons I really liked it is that's, that's probably one of those rare scenes in the film that actually kind of mimics something that's gone on from the original Howard Hawks film. Really? There's, there's a scene where um, they light James Arness on fire, and he goes blasting out of a wall and escapes into the, into the ice, of course, later to come back. And turn up like the bad penny that he is. Um, I personally really like the... I mean, everybody likes this scene, so might as well just bring it up. The scene where they have... Uh, I can't remember the character's name. Who is they have tied to a... He has a heart attack or something, they think, in That's the corner. Nor- Norris. Norris, and they tie him to this... They, they take him to the table, and the doctor's like, bring me the defibrillator. we got to try and start his heart back up. And... The second time he uses the defibrillator, his arms go through this hole in his chest, and it turns out that it's this massive, like a mouth, like toothed mouth, and it snaps his arms off. And he's like re- recoiling, and his arms are, you know, you know, bleeding and knotty stumps. And um, I was watching Rob Bottin explain this, and they found they, they built Norris's body out of rubber so that they could construct this uh, this snapping stomach. It's like a bear claw. Yeah, it's I like mean, a, a bear, like a, a very like a jagged animal, an animal trap yeah. or something. Yeah. And they found uh, they found an actor who actually had no arms, and they constructed these fake arms out of jello, but they put wax bones in, and they put uh, like uh, rubber veins and, and these plastic veins in there, you know, just ready to spew blood when they got punctured. And they made a, a rubber mold of the doctor's face and sort of glued it to this actor. And when he burst his arms through the the stomach, it was sort of set like a bear trap. It was it just snapped shut and actually severed through these fake arms, so that he could pull back these bloody prosthetic stumps and blood could go flying everywhere. And since he had this screaming mold on his face, you know, he just had to recoil in, in agony. And um, right following that, they is in this right where the the thing just sort of pops out of his stomach and sort of is dangling from the ceiling with that really nasty-looking head and spider legs, so they, of course, torch it, because their natural instinct is to torch everything in this movie. So as it's torching... A few, few weapons they have, since yeah. they've, they've realized that bullets really don't affect it. Yeah, they, as they're torching it, his head sort of stretches off and sort of falls to the floor, and it sprouts these really cool spider legs and sort of wobbles away. Um, Rob Bottin was explaining that he couldn't find a really stretchy material for the insides of this guy's neck, so he sort of put together this weird concoction of melted plastic and bubble gum and like paint thinner and and stuff, and it was releasing all these flammable fumes. And right as they were about to film it, it was basically a one take deal. They couldn't, you know, they didn't have the materials or whatnot to do it more than once, really. But John Carpenter was like, "Wait, wait, wait! Shouldn't there be fire because they just torched this thing?" So they, seemingly unaware that the room was filming was uh, filling up with these gaseous fumes, they set a fire bar at the front of the screen, which is basically this, like, metal tube that has little holes in it like you'd have in a, gla- in a gas fireplace. And they get the gas going, and they're chicken at it with a lighter. And once the fire bar lights up, basically the whole room explodes. <laughs> and it's like a cartoon, you know, where, where the worm explodes and everybody's got, you know, ash all over their face with that stunned expression. And the shot was ruined because the body was on fire, and they had to rebuild it and do the whole shot again. 
That, that's really, though, a scene that a lot of people remember because the spider head is, is a really effective shot, especially when the legs spring out of it. it it's very cool. Yeah, and then it crawls away, and uh, and they have to torch that piece, too. I, You've um, got to be fucking kidding. <laughs> that's a, I mean, it, that guy's not a very good actor, but his line readings are still kind of priceless. Yeah, Because he sort of, like, shouts everything, but he doesn't really move, so it's just like he's standing there, you know, slack-jawed while he's saying these really loud... Well, I, that's why I liked him because uh, you, you get the the sensation that he is just the ultimate burnout. Um, he's smoking pot all the time, and uh, he just—it's it, like all of his emotional response has just been deadened. So um, even though he's kind of bug-eyed watching this thing, like you say, his body language indicates that he's just standing there, very mellowed out. Um, do you have? Uh... Anything relating to this scene to comment on, or can I move on? To yeah, let's this? move on. Okay. Uh, I want to talk about Blair a little bit, because uh, he's a pretty interesting character, and we've pretty much ignored him this entire time. Um, he's played by Wolford Brimley. He's the doctor who sort of discovers, you know, if this thing is released into the world, mankind only has a limited time to survive. And he basically goes nuts and starts smashing all of the radio equipment and all of the helicopters and the tractor and basically anything they could use to make contact with the world or leave. And um, they sort of trap him in the tool shed and keep him there. And somehow, at some point, he becomes sort of the lead thing because they discover he's been building a spaceship underneath the tool shed. And that's really a really cool moment for me because up until then, you've thought of the thing as sort of just this rampaging monster who's just going to take control of whatever it can find, but it's really had a plan all along. And it's sort of doing both at the same time, systematically killing everybody in the base and making a means of escape. And at the very end, the Blair monster is very effective, too. It's, it's of course, remarkable, yeah. It's, yeah. it's you know, like a, a gigantic monstrosity that comes ripping up out of the floor has all these tentacles, has all of these... Uh, it's it's the, the culmination of, of every entity that it's become through this through this film. The dogs, some of the people, and then, of course, other monsters that it's it's picked up on other worlds or other, other beings. Uh, at one point, um, the kind of the head, which would have been like where, where Blair's head would be, it's all of this stuff is on top of this gigantic uh, tree trunk-sized tentacle... And um, there's almost like a dinosaur's kind of jaw minus the eyes that's at the top of all of this that, that roars, gives this loud roar. And there's, there's a great line in that scene, too, where McCready's like, yeah, fuck you, too, and then throws dynamite at it and blows it up. And, and that's, really cool. that's the climax of the film. I mean, ev ev everything then blows up. It's like everything was kind of tied in to the monster. You know, they've been um, systematically blowing everything up because they've realized there's there's nothing they can do, really. And Childs has been gone for so long that when he finally shows up as Kurt Russell is just sort of sitting there in the ruins, we have no idea whether or not he's been assimilated. And the movie just ends with them, you know, wondering who's who, you know, who goes there, really. Uh, really, really bleak. And they uh, they previewed this to some audiences, and they actually filmed a happy ending, or happy considering what came before. McCready survives. McCready the survives. They, they see he hasn't been infected. That's the happy ending, but of course they didn't use it. So And so glad that they didn't. They yeah, me didn't too. Cop out. Yeah, that would have been a cop-out ending to me. So, yeah, that's that's that. I mean, do you want to talk about performances, any that stood out for you? I mean, Kurt Russell was... He's just sort of the strong, silent type. and I mean, he's very good at it, 
but I don't know if there's really much to say about his performance other than he's just sort of the typical Kurt Russell silent badass. Yeah, this this was, um, I guess he's the perfect person to play this role. I can't see anybody else as McCready, uh, you know, 30 years later almost. But um, at the time when this came out and I was watching this, you know, this is right on the heels of uh, Escape from New York. And it's like, oh, gee, this is the exact same character. He just has a beard. So it, it seemed like um, like this wasn't a stretch for Kurt Russell to play this character. And I, in that regard, I guess I was a little bit disappointed when, when I first saw it was that Carpenter was... Uh, I, well, I guess I was hoping that Carpenter wasn't going to continue using Kurt Russell for every single film. And um, I guess, you know, I, I, I'm saying this isn't much of a stretch. It's not a stretch for Kurt Russell to go from playing Snake Plissken in Escape from New York, to being R.J. McCready in The Thing. It is a stretch for Kurt Russell to play either of these these uh, characters when, probably less than 10 years before this, he's in Disney movies as the um, the computer, the, the what is it, the, the genius who wore tennis shoes or, or something like this. There's a whole series of films that, that he was in for, for Disney where they're just kind of these schlocky uh, things akin to the uh, Frankie and and Annette Beach films in, in tone. So that's what I have to say about that. Okay. Um, I We've only mentioned some of the stuff that you've written down here. Is there anything else on here you want to cover? Or? Well, I, I've, uh, from my notes here, I mean, we've discussed a lot of the uh, communication issues and the, um, the things of, uh, about the thing being this uh, great intergalactic traveler, and yet we, we learn nothing of its culture and the fact that it doesn't want to communicate. I think that's a an interesting point in this film is is the communication factor that I, I mentioned earlier. I didn't really explain that very well, but the, what the characters find is that communication is the only way to succeed. And the characters who do not communicate or who seem more closed-minded, they are the ones who fail or who are eaten. Windows, we haven't mentioned him. He's a, a character played by, um, I think his name is um, David Waits. Is that right? I do not recall his um, name. Anyway, he, uh, or Tom, Thomas, Thomas Waits. Um, not to be confused with Tom Waits, the singer. That's right. Although that would have been pretty hilarious had he been in this movie. Yeah, he would have been a great Windows, wouldn't he? <laughs> um, but Windows is, uh, he's kind of a defeatist. Um, he's the radio operator. and He's he never really seeming to be operating a radio. Whenever they find him, he's always asleep on the job. And he's just sort of like, yeah, man, I can't, haven't gotten in contact with anybody for like two weeks. So there's not even communication. There's not just no communication between themselves. There's no communication with them or the outside world. They're not even trying. That's right. Well, no, he's, I guess, you know, we see him trying. He's, he's trying to, uh, to contact um, McMurdo Sound, which is the, the big headquarters uh, for all Antarctic uh, expeditions. But um, it's, a, it's, a, it's on the coast. And from some of the maps we see behind the characters, we understand that we get the idea they're a little bit more centrally located which goes back to my uh, idea that they should be either in darkness or in daylight. But um, Windows uh, becomes afraid of everybody, and instead of talking to them and trying to figure out who's who, uh, back to your uh, clever little uh, who goes there, he just runs off, and he tries to get a gun, and he's just going to hole up in a room or something we're led to believe and, and protect himself until they uh, they talk him out of it. But, um, yeah, the, the characters who do not commun- communicate are the ones who fail. And even in the end of the film, when Childs and McCready are sitting there 
nice and toasty in the exploded camp, but getting ready to freeze to death, it seems as if an understanding has been made, a meeting of the minds. MacReady says, uh, I think we're, we're both, you know, too tired, too out of shape. There's, there's nothing they can do at this point. There's no surprises. There's no way for them to surprise one another. They don't have any weapons left, and if one of them takes over the other, it's really, it still doesn't matter. They're going to freeze, and perhaps a, a rescue team or something might find them and thus wake, awaken the thing and, and let it uh, go off to another world again uh, or take over the Earth, but we have no idea what's, what's going to happen. So anyway, the, the communication, I think, is very important. I like that you made a little note here about how MacReady makes a tape about all of the events, and then at the end, he just destroys it. Well, we, we, you know, we don't know what happened. He says he's going to hide the tape. But my question was, where the hell is he going to hide it when they just blew up the entire camp? So, um, yeah, I think it's, that's kind of a, almost like a, a, futile, a futile gesture that's made in the, in the film. Although he uh, obviously isn't aware of the fact that, that that early in the movie that he's going to, going to blow it up. Something that we, we didn't really talk about much in uh, our discussion of uh, Shoot 'em Up or in Dawn of the Dead, but some fun things to look for are uh, continuity errors. Ugh. And with the exception of the, the night and day thing, this film is really, really carefully shot. Oh, yeah. Um, I didn't notice any. Did you notice any? I no. didn't notice a single error. Uh, I don't normally go out looking for continuity errors, but I feel fairly certain if I were to go to the IMDb page for this movie and look up you know, goofs or errors or whatnot. There wouldn't really be any. I think the most that there might be is that maybe once in a while you might be able to see a wire or a mechanic that they were doing to make some of these effects happen. Or somebody's jacket zipped in one scene and not, not, not the other. Not the other. Like that, like, and yeah. you, you made the um, little observation that there's the scene where Blair is in the tool shed and he's got a noose hanging from the ceiling, mm -hmm. but you can't see it from another shot except for a tiny little piece of it. So that would have been really easy. That would have been a really easy continuity error to spot, except that they were so careful that they made sure even that was correct. Yeah, they um, they didn't let it block. Kurt Russell's face is, is looking through this, this little slot in the door. And even if you saw this on the big screen, his face is going to be pretty small. So if they had left the rope over in the, in the, in the way, kind of... Um, you're, it would have taken your uh, taken your gaze, the viewer's gaze, and centralized it on on that point instead of looking at the actor's face. So uh, that was a uh, a good point on the set designer's uh, arrangement. Yeah, of the we were uh, on the documentary. The the guy who edited the movie, uh, I believe his name is well, it doesn't even say here on the box who the editor is. So whoever the editor is, you did a really good job. But he was talking about how Carpenter is really good at blocking a scene so that a lot can be happening in, in, with a lot of people and in this very small area, and yet it's shot in an interesting way that isn't confusing to the eye. And I think that whole rope blocking um, Kurt Russell's face just sort of plays into that, how well he shoots his movies. Mm -hmm. it, it probably makes it a very, I don't want to say easy, but easier for a an editor to cut because he doesn't have to think, gee, I wish I had this shot or I have to make sense out of this mishmash that the director has given me. And I think Carpenter is a really good eye for, for angles and, and the way to shoot certain scenes. Something else I wanted to, to mention, we discussed this a little bit while we were watching it. I was very impressed by the fact that the uh, professionalism of this film, and I'm not talking about the acting 
um, talent, the cinematography, in, in, in anything in specific. It's more just this general kind of feeling that the thing creates more so than any other Carpenter movie I've, I've ever seen. Halloween is a, a brilliant piece. Even Carpenter's earlier efforts like Dark Star and um, Assault on Precinct 13, those movies have this certain kind of cachet about them. There's, there's something interesting going on. Um, Escape from New York has its, its action moments and um, its cool kind of blasted-out sets, this and sort of yeah, thing. Uh, Escape from New York, too, um, I noticed had a very slow pacing, very similar to this film. It, it, it's not like... You'd expect a movie like this or Escape from New York, an action movie or a horror movie, to be sort of paced more quickly than they really are. And both of them, Carpenter has the the guts and the confidence in himself as a filmmaker to slow it down. And they're still really interesting and really involving films. And I really like that about his movies. The thing to me just seems very complete. The sets, the action, the acting, the, um, the script, everything is just... This is, um, I guess maybe, I'm going to use the word slick, but I don't mean it to seem like, like a... Glossy. It's not a Hollywood kind of slick. It's not, um, I don't know, some, some other kind of, something as polished as, say, like The Exorcist, where you have all of these, you know, these great things coming together and, and million dollar, millions of dollars, in, you know, in the, in the production, whatever. Carpenter keeps, it keeps the thing at kind of this low-budget sensibility, but... There's just it, it's his mo- most complete film. Even later films like uh, Prince of Darkness, In the Mouth of Madness, um, none of those seem as complete to me. There's always a little something missing. As much as I like all of his films, the thing is the the top of the heap. But you know what? We, in our in our complaining and our complimenting, we could talk about you know whatever we want, and yet it's always going to be one thing or another, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I don't really have much else to talk about, so I'll just say, uh, do you have a favorite scene or favorite moment in the movie? I mean, we talk about dialogue and whatnot, but is there something that really stands out for you? Well, uh, yeah, I, I, lo- I really love dialogue in all films, and um, I think I mentioned uh, a couple of my uh, my favorite pieces. Um, I think my favorite actor in the, the entire film is um, Keith David. I love his voice. I wish I could uh, I could imitate him for you. But one of the um, the cool things that happens, and we understand this as a, as a moment of not only of tension, but as also of contention between the characters, and this is another thing that reveals character and 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 drive, and that wills to survive at any cost. Clark attempts to attack Macready with a knife or with a scalpel he's picked up off of the tray, and Macready turns around and shoots him in the head. Well, later after the blood tests. We find out that Clark actually wasn't one of the things. So Keith David uh, Childs turns around and he says, I guess that makes you a murderer, don't it? And if we think about this in the sense of, of what's going to happen afterwards, if they all do survive, will he be treated as a murderer? Or will is this just self-defense? This is, again, you know, pointing out uh, McCready's just indomitable spirit, you know, he's, he's going to survive at, at every cost or at any cost. And, um, but I, I really think, uh, Keith David, his performance as child really stands out in this film. He's very, um, kind of just this, uh, tough, pragmatic kind of character. Interestingly, we were talking about the, uh, kind of racial stereotyping that goes on in Dawn of the Dead. And you mentioned that there's some stereotyping in this film, 
Knowles is uh, the uh, black fellow who's a cook, and um, Childs, we don't, we don't know what Childs' job is, um, obviously some sort of scientist or something, but I think in some ways these characters are empowered because we have a black guy and a white guy are the ones who end up together at the end of the film. We don't kill off all the black characters. And um, Knowles, when he's talking to these, these scientists whom we would assume are kind of his superiors in the sense that he's just the cook, but he calls them all Buana, which uh, it cracks me up, you know, this, uh, like the old um, jungle films or something where uh, the masters are all called Buana. And it, but, you know, in calling them that, he's saying it in, in an insulting fashion. So um, he's kind of getting his own little digs in there. And I, uh, I really enjoy that. You know, and just while we're thinking about that, um, Carpenter was talking in the documentary we were watching about how he wanted, he thought it would be really interesting to have an all-male cast and the sort of dynamics you could cast with that. But I think it might have been interesting to have women in there. Because, yeah, you'd have to add a whole feminist angle to the film, but just the very differences between men and women, the the sort of uh, dynamic between the sexes, would have created a, an interesting level of tension. Like, well, it's going to create a sexual are, tension. Wi- women, sexual tension, but also women are physically different. They are different than men. Would that have created an even higher level of paranoia because they're different to begin with? Would you know? Would that? You, are you getting what I'm? Yeah, I, the I, sort I, of I, tension I, there. I, I guess you know, just the uh, the physical difference. But I, I, you know. I don't know that there's going to be so much of that in the sense that at least we are the same species. Well, yeah. Um, I might have been uh, reaching there, but I thought it would have been interesting. One of the, uh, I've heard some criticism about, uh, and this is, this is criticism in advance of the fact, concerns of fans, uh, especially of Lovecraft, whom we mentioned earlier as, as being um, probably the, uh, one of the leading influences of, uh, of Carpenter in this film and in others um, in the, in the fog, there's a mention of Arkham reef and, uh, of course, in the Mouth of Madness, which this, the title sounds very much like At the Mountains of Madness, and we have uh, a New England writer who disappears and this sort of thing. But um, there's uh, there's this this Lovecraftian uh, or, or the, the idea that that some, uh, Guillermo del Toro is going to do uh, At the Mountains of Madness. He's trying to I'm very excited about that, by the way. He's trying to get that project off the ground, and fans have feared that when he does. The script will probably involve at least one female lead to be the romantic lead, and um, that in the end, the uh, the various um, shoguts and, and various monsters, the the great old ones and, and things that are are found there in the Antarctic, that they'll all be killed by the hero. So it'll be. Uh, I like to give Guillermo del Toro a bit more credit than that. I mean, well, that that was the fear. That that's what people have feared in their criticism. I mean, is that given the overwhelming darkness and depressing bleakness of a film like Pan's Labyrinth, he's not afraid to kill off even children. Not even that, female children. I mean, he he is willing to do what the story requires, and I think a movie like At, uh, At the Mountains of Madness would uh, really benefit from a storyteller of Del Toro's Oh, I, I agree. I, I think he would be the, the master to do this. I just wonder if he can stand up against the studio system. The studio system wanting to throw a female lead in there just to get young guys to go and see it. So, uh, you know, let's hope that somebody like Megan Fox doesn't uh, <laughs> make an appearance in uh, At the Mountains of Madness. Okay. Um, final thoughts on the thing? 
one of one of my it's it's got to be in in the top ten of my my favorite films. Oh, that's the final thought on the. Thing. That's my final thought. Okay, um, my final thought on the thing is that I hadn't seen this in years. Uh, I bought the DVD mainly on a whim because I remember liking it and watching it again now. Uh, I was just reminded half of how great it was in comparison, especially to the many subpar alien monster movies that there are out there. The special effects are astounding. There's a real pervasive mood and and sort of feeling that that you get from this film that you don't get from a lot of other movies. I think it's it's a classic and everybody should see it. I do want to mention the uh, novelization of the movie by Alan Dean Foster. He did the uh, no novelization of Clash of the Titans also, as well as I well, assume yeah. being a Foster's a you know he's a uh, has been working in the science fiction field and and he's written other novelizations to, of just kind of contemporary movies as well, but. He's a fantasy and science fiction author going back probably for the last 35, 40 years. Um, I don't know what his more recent works are like or if he's even still alive, to be honest. But um, I just think it's interesting that such a such a book exists, especially yeah. since we have the original story that is really pretty revered in the science fiction realm. Well, his novelization is actually done from the, the Bill Lancaster script. So, I mean, he, he takes the screenplay and then just kind of fleshes it out with, with detail. But um, the... Uh, the book is actually, uh, you know, it's very compelling. Builds its own suspense. Um, I'm actually not a, a great fan of, of Foster's work, um, having seen some of the things that he did with uh, with the Star Wars uh, characters in uh, a book called Splinter of the Mind's Eye. I wasn't very happy with that, but the thing is, a, it, it stands up. So that's that's not bad. All right. Well, I guess that's all for this one. Uh, thank you for tuning in to Cinemantics, the podcast about movies, good and bad. Mostly bad. Be sure to check in next week for the next installment of our John Carpenter, Kurt Russell theme month. Uh, I am your host, Nick Melton. And I am G. Warlock Vance. And uh, you can contact me at G, like George, E-E-W-A-R-L-O-C-K at AOL.com. And you can uh, order my mystery novel, The Missing Narrative of Neptune, directly from me there um, to get signed copies. Or you can find it on Amazon.com. Thank you very much. All right. Uh, well, we are signing off now and reminding you that man is the warmest place to hide. <laughs>